You're listening to Working Together for Working Families, sponsored by the Pascal Sykes Foundation. Hello, I'm Jackie Edwards. Welcome to the Working Together for Working Families podcast, where we come together to highlight individuals and organizations working to help whole families reach their goals. And I'm Rochelle Tadiamoa. Today we have two special guests. Reverend Daryl Armstrong, pastor of Shiloh Baptist Church in Trenton, New Jersey, founder of Faith Global Network, former director, New Jersey Division of Prevention and Community Partnership, and Dr. Bruce Perry, with over 30 years of experiences as author, teacher, clinician, and researcher in children's mental health and the neurosciences. You can find both of their extensive and impressive bios in the summary section of the podcast. So good morning to you both. Good morning, Michelle. Good morning. Good morning. Great to be here with you both. Thank you. So um, Reverend Armstrong, I'm going to ask you to possibly get us started today um, and maybe introduce our guests and, um, and we'll take it from there. Absolutely. I'm excited to introduce my friend and to have him join us uh, with the Pascal Sykes Foundation. Bruce Perry and I have been working together for 14, 15 years since we met when I was the director of the Division of Prevention and Community Partnerships for the state of New Jersey. Uh, so it's always great to work with you, Bruce, Dr. Perry, I should say. Um, thanks for being Bruce on. Is good. That's Bruce right. Is good. You and Oprah Winfrey have written what has become probably one of the seminal texts in the child trauma, uh, even adult trauma, trauma-informed movement. Uh, the title of your book, What Happened to You?, is really provocative because most people, as you and Oprah have said, tend to ask the question, what's wrong with you? And so the actual changing of that simple question revolutionizes the conversation with a child, with an adult, with anyone. How did you and Oprah come up with this particular title? Why did you and Oprah come up with this particular title? And tell us a little bit more about the book, what the audience can expect when they read this profound book. Well, I want them to know that Daryl and I are good friends and full disclosure, <laughs> we we have been working together and uh but this is really a wonderful opportunity to to sort of reconnect around this foundation and the work that the foundation has been doing because it really is at the intersection of what we have been interested in as a working group and what Daryl has sorry what Daryl Armstrong Daryl <laughs> has been doing for his whole life really and uh we'll talk about that in a minute but the book it's interesting that phrase what happened to you really came out of a a clinical meeting mm. with Sandy Bloom, who was a pioneer in our field many, many, many years ago. She was beginning to shift her clinical work into a more trauma-aware, trauma-informed approach. There was a social worker on her team who made the observation that it's almost as if we've gone from asking what's wrong with you in these psychiatric uh, assessments to what happened to you because they were going from really making a list of oh you're inattentive and you're impulsive and you and you do this bad thing and and that was the focus of the work but as we learn more about how developmental experiences both good and bad shape you uh, we started to be more developmental in our assessment and and all of the things we were seeing began to make much more sense we recognize that a lot of times what we were calling ADHD was actually a stress response system that was on overdrive. 
it was amped up and overactive because we had a child who'd been growing up in an environment where there was unpredictability, didn't know where he's going to sleep. The family didn't know where they were going to, you know, where work was. They moved a lot. They didn't, they were disconnected from community and culture. And that impacted the way that child grew up. And so rather than labeling them with these mental health labels and then giving them medications, for example, that would not likely work because that's not what the problem was, we started to listen to people about what had happened to them. And it really shifted the way we do practice. Now, the reason the book's titled that is it was because I'm a really bad teacher. Well, <laughs> but I've been talking to Oprah about these things for 30 years. And um, she asked me to be part of a 60-minute story about uh, a program that worked with women in a domestic violence shelter in Milwaukee. And, and after the interview, she had seen a boy who had been given all these opportunities and all of these resources and all these people trying to help him. And he just kind of walked away from them or he, he sabotaged them. And she just was like, couldn't figure it out. She said, what's wrong with that kid? And I said, well, the question's really not what's wrong with him. We should, what, you know, I wonder what happened to him. And it was like, as, it was as if in that moment, all of those conversations I'd had with her crystallized. And she's like, oh my God. She literally talks about that being sort of an epiphany moment where all of these things kind of made more sense. And that's why the, the book is titled that. So Dr. Perry, who was the intended audience for the book? Because you <clears throat> cross so many sectors, you're a teacher, you're a researcher, you're a scientist. Who was the intended audience for the book? That, you know, Rochelle, that's a great question because anybody who knows much about Oprah knows that she's a very intentional person. She wants to have a clear intention to what she chooses to do. In this case, the intention was to reach people who really had not heard much about this. You know, Daryl and I have been in this world, you know, if you work in the child welfare system, if you work in mental health, you've heard about this for years. But we really wanted this to go out to people who might not have really been exposed to this in other aspects of their life. So it was really intended for the general public mm -hmm. and anybody who was not that aware of the importance of developmental uh, experiences. So for several years now, uh, the Pascal Sykes Foundation, we've championed the whole family approach, which is essentially a family-led strategy that provides adults and children with tools to sort of set, plan for, and achieve their goals. And, and they do that in various ways, several agencies working in collaboration with each other. Um, there's a, a sort of family advocate, or in other words, maybe a social worker, but more of an advocate for a particular family. And the approach is meant to be preventative rather than focusing on crisis. What are your thoughts on that, on preventative approaches as opposed to crisis or, or both for that matter? Well, I, I like two things that you talked about are, are so important in the way we reframe all of our mental health and I think education and all, all of our systems. We need to stop thinking about people as these independent, isolated creatures in a vacuum. Whenever we do service delivery, even if we do something as simple as healthcare, if we do that, you know, that you think, oh, I'm somebody has chest pain and diabetes, even when you do healthcare focused on that, you're missing out 
by not including family and community and cultural factors. Mm -hmm. And so I think, first of all, the fact that you do that is really a wise move. Mm -hmm. And what we have been able to see by looking at programs that are proactive, that are trying to provide support, stability, nurturing up front in people's lives is that that decreases risk as they get older. <clears throat> and it decreases risk in educational problems and in physical health problems and in mental health problems and all these public systems we have that we have to pay taxes for, right? We build these systems to help folks who are struggling in those areas. Mm -hmm. If we sort of moved a little bit more to a supportive, non-punitive, stable, proactive set of activities like you do in your programs, mm -hmm. we would literally need much less of our time and attention focused on these problems downstream. So I think it's a really wise approach. I think that it's underutilized across the board. You know, and Daryl probably has seen this play out in our big public systems again and again and again, that we spend probably 85 to 90% of our resources in a semi-crisis mode trying to just tread water when we should have just, you know, spent a little bit of money putting up a guide rail and said, don't jump into water here. And Reverend Armstrong, you know, you, as uh, Dr. Perry says, you've been working in this field too, and uh, you're familiar with the whole family approach. Do, do you have any thoughts on what are your thoughts on this sort of uh, preventative approach uh, to, to working with families? Absolutely. I mean, my seminary and theological training at Princeton Seminary gave me a good insight into pastoral counseling, but it, it did not ground me in family systems therapy. And so I had to go back to school and get a, a postmasters in marriage and family therapy in order to meet the needs of my congregation. Because essentially what every rabbi, what every priest, what every sheikh, what every pastor does is family engagement with multiple constitutions of family, adoptive families, single mom-led families, grandparent-led families, sometimes no family at all. You got a kid raising themselves. And so, but we need to figure out how to provide a family systemic approach, which means, as Dr. Perry said, you don't treat folk in isolation. Uh, we all are tuning off each other. We, we're, we're resonating off each other. So you don't take a kid out of a system, quote unquote, fix that kid and put him back into a quote unquote broken system. You try to figure out what's going on with that family system. And, you know, for every dollar we spent on prevention in New Jersey, when I was the director, we spent $9 on intervention and crises. And we know that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So trying to go upstream and do the primary, secondary, and tertiary prevention efforts with community-based, universally accessible wraparound services as far up front as we can get them is absolutely what we should be doing. And so the 2Gen approach that the foundation promotes, it doesn't have to be a biological family member. It can be a coach, it can be a pastor, it can be a counselor, it can be a doctor, it can be anyone two caring adults in the life of a child can make a system. And if we feed that system positively, we will see a change in the overall system. Wow, that's great. Thank you. So one of the outcomes of the research that we that were conducted by the Senator Walter Rand Institute at Rutgers University was that people continue to sh show resilience despite the issues, challenges, 
or struggles that they were facing, especially during the COVID-19 shutdown. But when I hear someone say that people are resilient during crisis or a difficult time, I often wonder, how is that possible? And so Dr. Perry, can you speak to this? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I've been studying the sort of the biology of resilience from the moment I was in undergraduate, even in college. And one of the things that we didn't really discover, other people discovered it, but it became sort of well-known in the neuroscience field is that stress in certain patterns, certain kinds of stress, when there's controllability and when the stress is moderate, that leads to a stronger, more resilient system. But when stressful experiences are unpredictable or prolonged, that wears the systems down and you start to demonstrate risk for physical health, mental health problems. Now, the, the beauty of this is that that capability is malleable, changeable. So at one moment in your life, you can just be like right at the edge of your last nerve and, and not be able to demonstrate resilience and struggle. But if you're given opportunities for moderate, predictable, controllable stress by having a safe, stable environment, a little bit of economic stability, relational connection with community of faith, with that you begin to build the capacity to demonstrate resilience, which is a really great quality of the human species. And the key to this all is relational stuff, connectedness to the people around you and to your beliefs and to your values. But unfortunately, part of what we see is that people don't understand that aspect of resilience very much. And people all too often use the term resilience to basically escape the pain that they are feeling by seeing other people struggle. Mm -hmm. It happens all the time that, that we want to declare kids who are in a school shooting resilient because we don't want to literally hold in our mind the horror that they have to live with every day. And so to make us feel better, we call them resilient. When in mm -hmm. fact, that's basically uh, a way for us to sort of avoid really solving the problem. And I think that this happens all too often. And, and, and the people who are sort of dismissed as being resilient are usually the people that are the most marginalized, disenfranchised, disempowered. And it means that, uh, you know, I, I'm going to just say it, but white upper middle class, you know, uh, economically stable populations can not worry about the inner city. Because yeah, people are resilient, you know, they can pull themselves up by the bootstraps, blah, blah, blah. You know, I didn't have a lot of money when I was growing up. You know, all, all of those little excuses that help you psychologically escape the reality that people are part of your community and you really should be trying to help them as opposed to sure. dismissing them. So I, I hate it when resilience is used as a dismissive thing. It's interesting that you say that because I, I work in, in the homeless field and I work with families, who, with children who are homeless and struggling. And I often heard from some of the social workers, all these families are resilient. They'll figure it out. And it's like they have nothing and they're really struggling. Kids are, you know, going from school to school. Parents don't really have, you know, they don't know where they're going to sleep or, you know, don't have the income, but they're resilient and they'll figure it out. So I've heard that. And it's, and that's why it's like, why? How do people figure these people who don't have much are going to figure it out and they're resilient? And if I may just jump into that, we then 
make of the individual or the family unit a superhero and tell other folk, why can't you be like this one superhero that made it, that, that survived the system? And we then berate the 99% who will not make it because they cannot be like the 0.01% that quote unquote did make it. They're resilient. How come you other ones can't figure it out? And then when you go look at that superhero like Oprah, right? Mm -hmm. You find out that the reason she made it was that somebody put a hand out and pulled her up. She didn't pull herself up by the bootstraps. She had a teacher. She had aunties. She had other extended families. She had angels of faith. She Mm -hmm. had all. And that's some of the stuff we write about in the book. She just didn't happen automatically. That the whole thing about pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, that's just such BS. So the study also used this interesting scale called mattering, where people were asked if they felt that they mattered in their family or their community. How much do you think mattering means in people's ability to overcome struggles that they may have experienced with respect to trauma or some hardship? You know, I I love this topic because this is one of the mystical and mysterious parts of the human condition is that Mm. your belief about the world, your belief about your belonging and and your faith, if you will, Mm -hmm. actually is a powerful, powerful physiological sustainer in in the midst of pain and and chaos and threat and stress. And so this is one of the things that we need to learn more about. But there's no doubt about it that when people feel they truly feel that there's some reason for me on this planet that things will not always be this bad, that there are people that I belong with somewhere and I will find them and they will find me. When you have those beliefs, you can really be sustained through really tremendously overwhelming situations. And I, and we need, you know, we have a lot more to learn about that, but that's a really powerful thing. And this is why I think, for example, being connected to a community of faith can be a really powerful sort of relational sustainer, but also this spiritual sustainer is, is part of what, what it does. Of course, I, here I am, the guy who doesn't know anything about that talk, and we have Reverend Armstrong right here. He's, he better yeah. weigh in on this. Yes. <laughs> it's your world, man. I'm sorry. Listen, Back listen. away from the spiritual commentary. <laughs> But listen, from the moment you wrote The Boy Raises the Dog um, on up to everything else you've written, there's always been a spiritual strain in what you're talking about. And so whether you, we call it epigenetics, whether we call it uh, resilience, whether we call it whatever we call it, the those magical words, mystical, some would say spiritual words of attunement, attachment, and bonding is the very nuclei of what faith is about. I will say this, though, one of the things that came out of the the research had to do with uh, the family unit where in one, I don't know, I think it's in a couple of families where the father is the breadwinner and he he was really looked to for the financial piece up to, to keep the family together. But when COVID hit and he lost his job, they reconnected on a different level and the mattering came in, like he mattered mm. more to that family than just the financial mm. person in that family. And they connected a lot during, you know, you hear this a lot during COVID where families were together and they had to be together. So they re- they connected in a different way. And that mattering came up in that scale too. Yeah, it was important. 
a lot, I think we learned a lot of things during COVID, even though, I mean, of course we did, even though it was a trying and struggling time so much, there were many good things that came out of that, of that time and a lot of learning uh, from that time, um, is, which is a good segue to this next question. Um, in part of your book, Dr. Perry, you mentioned, you know, some of the plights of what we were just talking about being a single parent. And in the book you state, um, it's such an unfair expectation of our society. No other society in history of this planet ever asked a single adult to provide physical, social, emotional, and material needs of multiple children by themselves. And you're talking about in this section about the, you know, just what, just what we were talking about, about the, um, the importance of the church, of your community, of your teachers, and and you know even uh, your coaches, your 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 uh, sports team members, your family members, and this is what the uh, Pascal Sykes Foundation has called we've called social supports over the years, and yeah. and um, and how critical they are to strengthening families. And so, although this is it, it is taking place in many parts of the world. But you know, you you're correct in that our individualism has perhaps steered us away from this level of community in, in some ways. How do you think we can get back to this practice where we are more accountable for each other? Wow, in these this day and age, great question. <laughs> you know, I one of the things that we've written about a little bit and observed is the and, and Daryl brought this up earlier, kind of epigenetics, the, the the transgenerational pull to live a certain way. And, you know, everybody kind of knows that you people tend to speak the language that they were raised with, to parent their kids the way they were parented, to practice, you know, vote the way your parents voted. You know, we, we pass things from generation to generation to generation. And one of the things that's happened over the last 100 generations is that we've become increasingly comfortable with and even seek out material things like overvalued the material acquisition of, of things. Mm -hmm. And part of that is having your own home with your own room, with your own TV, with your own cell phone. And rather than sharing one, you know, landline phone in a neighborhood, which used to happen, you know, there used to be a phone, the Joneses had a phone, the entire block used it. Yeah. And um, <laughs> it, it, that, you know, run down to the Joneses and you know, call for help. <laughs> but now we're, everybody's got their own thing that the result is a fragmentation. It just sort of relationally fragments us. We might even be in the presence, literally, if you live in Philadelphia, for example, you're around millions of people, but you're in parallel with them mostly, right? Or you're sort of drifting around them in public transportation and in an office, and you're not in communion with them. You're not in conversation with them. And I think that this relational fragmentation in our society has really led to profound physical and emotional vulnerability. And one of the nice things I like about what you guys are doing with your programs is that you recognize you have a multi-generational approach, mm -hmm. you have a family supportive approach, but also you recognize that the families need to connect with each other, right? And with the community, not just internally, mm -hmm. you, you appreciate this relational milieu, this matrix that we need to be healthy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, part of this is ultimately you have to, you end up backing out of what makes a group of people healthy, what makes a group of people safe, what makes it predict, what brings predictability. And it comes down to stuff like housing policy, economic policy, 
you know, it's hard to have a bunch of stable families in a community that doesn't have jobs, you know? Yeah. So, you know, if you're really interested in this stuff, one of the challenges is you have to learn about a lot of different disciplines and you have to work with people who have different backgrounds and different capabilities and different strengths. And human beings are not good at that. Right. We tend to be good at working with people who look like us, who think like us, who talk like us, who eat the kinds of stuff at lunch we usually eat. And so there's this pull towards up and us. And when that happens, there's also this tendency to go, oh, them. You know, if you're an Eagles fan, you're not, oh, God, you're a Cowboys fan. Like whatever way you want to pull yourself together or divide mm -hmm. yourselves, we've got a million ways to do that. And so part of what we need to do is, is intentionally teach away from our biology. You know, our biology pulls us to create an us and them. We need to start early on embracing and celebrating diversity and difference as a way for our whole community to be stronger rather than promote practices and beliefs and activities that create these little silos and clusters. But mm -hmm. that's that's a big ask. We, you know, honestly, if we don't figure out how to do that, our species is not long for this planet. Wow. <laughs> Powerful, powerful. I mean, you talk about tribalism, right? This notion that we exactly. get pulled exactly. into our tribes and mm -hmm. whether that's around race, region, religion, um, the, the fight against tribalism is part of what, as you you saying so wonderfully, part of our survival as a planet. Yeah. So, Bruce, you mentioned the word policy, and this is a shameless plug for our summit tomorrow, the summit that is going to convene tomorrow. November the 16th, a hybrid summit where we are inviting folk from all over the country and all over the world really to join us for this dynamic presentation that the Sykes Foundation um, has been studying and researching their investments in the two-gen whole family approach. That's going to take place tomorrow from nine to three. We invite everyone listening to be a part of that with us. And you are one of our featured uh, presenters tomorrow. And we entitled the the summit intentionally the power of research to inform policy. And so we're going to have government officials from the highest level of the federal government, state government, um, county municipal government leaders. We're going to have philanthropists. We're going to have community-based organizations, faith-based organizations. But the real outcome that we're hoping for is that how do we take all this amazing work the foundation has been doing and other, and, and other organizations such as um, your neurosequential neuro approach and um, the Faith Global Network, all this work, how does it inform policy? And so what's your thought, uh, Bruce, around what we can do to take this work and change policy? Um, because as you mentioned earlier, uh, we're investing millions in intervention crises outcomes, but if we change policy, we can have perhaps not only save money, but actually change lives. Uh, you know, Daryl, I wish I knew anything about policy. <laughs> I mean, I, you and I have both had the experience where we've had access to policymakers, you know, people that really have the ability to make change. And there are times when you, you see that they hear this and they're willing to learn and they think through what would be an appropriate change in policy to act on this key concept or principle that is true. Um, but then they have to enter their world 
which is this weird it try come back to tribalism right so they have to fight these really um prolonged ongoing really political little battles and there's this weird negotiation and you give up this to get that and it's a process that is exquisitely human <laughs> and and i and because of that it is inefficient and and it's slow so policy change tends to be very slow in comparison to the acquisition of new content right so the rates of research learning about these things is much faster than our ability to make systemic changes around that. And, and that's in part is that human beings have invented policymaking process that is almost intentionally meant to be slow. So th this is one of the frustrating things for people who, particularly young folks that are enthusiastic and they enter the this world, they go, oh, we know, we know that early childhood is really important for you. We know all this great stuff happens. Why don't, why don't we take care of young mothers? And they're like, uh, just sit back and watch. <laughs> You'll see. This is why. But it takes time. So yeah. I, I think that we have to be intolerant of what we see that is making it worse for these families and these kids. But we also have to be patient with the policymakers and keep giving them facts, keep giving them examples of things that work, like what you guys have been doing. Now, you now have an example of something that works and you need to keep hammering away and, and referencing back to it and sharing what you've learned. And little by little by little, you will get philanthropic help to maybe replicate what you did and expand it. And then they'll be able to get some, you know, junior legislator who sort of wants to make his bones <laughs> and he'll try to introduce it and it'll get shot down. And in a generation, it'll be standard policy. <laughs> but it's going to take a, it takes a while. That's the problem. It just takes a while. Yeah. Dr. King said the arc of the moral universe is long, but ultimately it does bend towards justice. We, we hope and believe that, that is the case. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's such a wise observation. And, you know, that's one of the challenges of our world is that we are, we were really not biologically put together to live in groups of millions we were put together to live in groups of 50, 60, right? Maybe a hundred and no, 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 another group of a hundred over there, but that's your stuff over there. You leave our stuff over here alone. And when we, when we start to get past that, then we start to have these conflicts and, um, and we're still learning how to manage that. Well, uh, thank you, Dr. Perry, for an engaging conversation and you as well, Reverend Armstrong. And we are looking forward, as you mentioned, to an exciting conversation on November 16th. We will have some amazing uh, practitioners, work, people around the country working with children and families. So that's all the time that we have for today. But uh, again, we hope everyone will visit www.pascalsykesfoundation.com and register, there's still time, a few hours, and register for the summit, uh, to attend the summit. Thank you both. Thank you, Jackie. Thank you. Thank you, appreciate the opportunity. Great to Absolutely. see you, Daryl. Great being here, great to see you, Bruce. See you tomorrow. Thank you. Working Together for Working Families, sponsored by the Pascal Sykes Foundation, is published monthly. You can follow this podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about the whole family approach, 
visit our website, wholefamilyapproach.org.